so hello and welcome back to Climbing on Mount Sophia. I'm excited today to be joined by one of the pillars of the this little corner, Paul Vanderclay. Um, this conversation as a background. I've I've I come into this little corner by means of Jordan Peterson, Jonathan Paggio, and then um John Verveke has become one of the fundamental influences in my life in a lot of ways. Um and so I, I hadn't engaged your work too much until more recently, actually, as a function of starting this channel, some people connected with me through the, um, the John Verveke conversations that I've had. And um, and it's been really lovely, but kind of because of that, I've started to watch some of your videos and really enjoyed, um, uh, obviously, just getting to know you kind of through this virtual means. And then um, we had an exchange on Twitter or a little bit of an exchange by by means of, of some other folks in the corner about this whole notion of what is it, what do we mean by the word Christianity? And so um, that's kind of the direction I want to, I want to head and I'll, I'll lay a little bit of background so you kind of understand my question, but um, okay. welcome, welcome to climbing on Mount Sophia and thank you so much for coming. That's good to be here. <laughs> um, so I guess I'll just jump right into it. The, um, because probably everyone who watches my channel watches and they know who you are. So <laughs> um so the, the, i've been having this struggle and there's two different aspects of this question one is like what does it mean to call yourself a christian in kind of an uh an existential sense like there's that whole question and i'm interested in getting into that but first i'd like to ask a little bit of a different question which is since engaging with john's work it's become really important to me not to equivocate the words i'm using and for me, that really lays itself out in terms of when I am trying to articulate something and and even just understand my own experience of the world, if I use the same word to mean the same thing every time, it's stable for me. And then that gets even more um, significant in conversation with others. And so I'm running up over and over again against this term Christian and Christianity. And it's strikes me as it's, it's so terrifically equivocated um that i i've kind of stopped using it but it's still like you're forced to use it and so i'm trying to grapple with like how do i use this term in this language to refer to this like behemoth of a of a of a thing right but it, it's it, anyway so there that's that's my issue i didn't hear a question <laughs> <laughs> i see your reality i see the problem and to to know to to see the problem says a lot of good things about you because in some ways for Christians Christianity is reality mm. like Christ is reality you know the Apostle Paul in the New Testament so Jesus you have kingdom of heaven kingdom of God in the Synoptics you have um, eternal life in John. And then you have in Christ in a lot of the Pauline literature. And so you're quite right when, you know, and, and this is where some of the work of Tom Holland is helpful because, you know, he, his backstory, he, you know, he was, a you know, left the church at six years old or something and um, just got a university degree, was interested in history, wanted to be a great writer, started writing vampire novels. I didn't really do it. So then he he wrote Rubicon, which is, you know, he, he was he loved dinosaurs. He loved uh the the classical world. And and the more he studied the classical world, 
the more he began to feel the distance between the present world and the classical world. And then he wrote this book on Islam and Islam's, um, basically Islam's creation story of Islam itself. And there's a lot of historical issues with that. I mean, people think there are issues with the origin story of Christianity. Just compare it with Islam. It's not even close. And so then he starts going on the road promoting his book um, and really annoyed a lot of Muslims. And they one guy finally said to him, you know, why don't you study your own religion? He's like, well, I don't have a religion. And then he writes this book and and he begins to realize that the Western world and to a degree, any place that's been impacted by secularity is deeply, deeply formed by Christianity. And even the even those pushing back against it. I mean, this is what Peterson was pointing to when he, you know, the atheist, he would say to the atheist, you're not really an atheist. And of course they'd get all offended. It's and a sect of Christianity. Exactly. Yeah. Atheism is sort of the secret second sister to the church. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean in terms of this word Christian? Who is a Christian? And and, and especially because you have all of so I'm going to talk to John and Jordan B. Cooper this week. And I was I was listening to Jordan B. Cooper's critique of John again and just thinking about how these issues are so difficult to untie and unpack. And, you know, John, with his interest and pursuit of Neoplatonism, this stuff has been together for so long. I mean, Augustine, you know, was into it was Manichaean for a while, then deeply Neoplatonic. I was talking to Al Walters once on this listserv, and he was talking about, you know, his, one of his interests in Augustine is his Neoplatonism. And, you know, John making the observation of the the deep, the deep connections between Aquinas and Platonism. And some people have said, you know, Christianity is Platonism for the masses. So, mm -hmm. There's there's no getting around Christianity almost anywhere in the world, even even places that want to be ostensibly secular mm -hmm. and anti-Christian. And so, yeah, the term is is tremendously fraught, which and, and then just in in common use. Well, are you a Christian? Well, what do you mean by that? As someone who lives in Saudi Arabia, everyone in America is Christian, except mm -hmm. for maybe a few Muslims and Jews. But everyone else, all the atheists are Christian, mm -hmm. and they've got a point. Mm -hmm. So what then does it mean to, in American terms, to be a Christian? And when you're in church, you have this in depth, because a lot of what churches do is tell people who are ostensibly Christian or self-identify as Christian to say, you're not real, you're not a good real Christian, you should be a better Christian, a more real Christian. It just, there's no end to this dilemma. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when I guess what I'm hearing you say is like you want to make like Christianity is this thing that underlies it's like this operating system that a whole like everything we know of as culture and I and I agree with this with this version is like there's there's and it's it's embedded in the grammar as John likes to say it's it's yep. so deeply embedded in the strains of thoughts that we that we all stand on. And yep. even even the strange ways in which it's fully self-critical of itself, yep. it's still standing on itself to start with. So yep. like and, and, and that's the way that it's like this this 
collective form of ideas almost that's running on this. But then on the flip side, so there's that thing that's happening. And then there's all the layers that stack up off of that with all their distortions and things. Yep. But yep. then on the other side, you have this, okay, individual identifying with this thing. Right. Which gets like, so all these layers on either side, there's mismatches and it gets totally confusing in that way. Does that seem like? Yeah. I, and and I think that's part of the reason why in the, if you look at the 1970s, so I, I laugh every time someone complains about Christian nationalism, because that has been the default position of the United States from its inception, even though, I mean, deism is is a strain of Christianity. You have all of this. So then, so then in the 1970s, you had this born again movement and Jimmy Carter was so-called first born again president. Uh, Chuck Colson, after, you know, he had been Richard Nixon's hatchet man and he meets somebody in Washington who starts talking to him about Jesus. And he, he basically, in his book, Born Again, you know, comes home and tells his wife that, you know, he's a Christian now. And she's sort of like, I thought we were Episcopalian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and so I think part of the reason all of that personal relationship language emerged in the in the late 20th century was an, an attempt to differentiate the lived ex existential participatory mm -hmm. thing that then you know evangelical churches in particular called a personal relationship with Jesus Christ with sort of the episcopalian mainline background noise that was pervasive in american culture and so then what what a lot of evangelicals did and and what and you see catholics do it and and i think that's part of what we see with people who are becoming orthodox and this all movement they're they're appropriating it they're making it something their own and so because they have to they have to gain some distance from the background noise i mean you could call that in some ways a degree of self transcendence but it also has to be personal so you know i've looked at the first um so is john stuff coming out today yeah it's coming out today yeah right yeah 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 so i I'm looked excited. at the i got a i got a sneak peek at the first one mm -hmm. and you know all of the all of the stuff that he wants to do the participatory the procedural all of that stuff we didn't use those fancy words and some you know, evangelical church someplace, they called it a personal relationship with Jesus, but mm -hmm. that's the functional equivalent. They needed mm -hmm. to make Jesus participatory, procedural, perspectival, and not just propositional. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's why that emerges in the evangelical church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost like, so I guess before I had talked about the, the overall historical level of the ideas of Christianity, and then you have the person's but there's, there's this other thing, right, which is what Christianity is in itself, which is something like the person of Christ, right, and 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 the, and and uh, a means of participating in reality such that you know, the theosis idea, such, such that you're in communion with, with reality as it's supposed to be, and, you know, you're, you're, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And so that thing in itself, it's almost, I guess the way I see it is like, there's the thing in itself. And then there's all of us and our various positioning 
or posturing in relation to that thing. And based on that is where we get the kind of historical overlay of what Christianity comes to be. And because it's so vast and because it's so significant, we get this massive confusion because there's just like the number of postures held in relation to this thing bleeds out this this historical framework that is just and cultural framework that's very very like bizarre and confusing at this point i i think the quest for the thing in itself is analogous to what i've called a monarchical vision mm. we want and and it's and i think it's it's sort of sneakily once again an attempt to distill Christianity or almost anything else into the propositional. Mm-hmm. You will never, I, you know, I do not think our little brains or even our little traditions can capture the thing in itself. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, that's, I think that's recognized by various theological statements that are both Protestant and, and, orthodox or or roman catholic you know the when we talk about god not being knowable it doesn't mean that we can't know anything but we cannot contain god and so every time we have this quest for the thing in itself Mm -hmm. that's just to me another version of the same game of propositional capturing and and i think the motivation for that is if we if we think we can capture, well, how would we capture it? Probably propositionally within a within an abstracted box. If we think we can capture the thing in itself, then we can wield it. Mm-hmm. And I think fundamental to Christianity and to I think fundamentally fundamental to anything that is not idolatrous is it cannot be wielded. You cannot mm-hmm. wield God, and I think idolatry is fundamentally the attempt to wield wield God through a statue, through a practice, through a set of propositional beliefs. If I if I do these things, then I and it's just it's idolatrous because we then want to replace God. And fundamentally, the posture you need to have towards God is not idolatrous. It is I cannot. I mean, I can't even know my wife in herself or my children in herself or my church in itself. Mm-hmm. And so to to sort of say, well, I want to really define Christianity in itself. You, that's, that's nothing you are capable of by virtue of who you are. Yes, absolutely. Because, well, I mean, that's the move of original sin already, right? But it's abstracted up. Like you're, you're taking the original sin thing that you can do just in yourself in the world which is, you know, to predicate your belief of what reality is on your own reference point. And then you're you're abstracting that up a whole other layer to the layer of the religious. Right. And you're doing it and then projecting it in a way. And, and in a way, it gets more and more powerful over time, right? right. And it, but every time that happens, there's, there's a, you know, it's almost like there, there's a, there's a cascading effect of negative space that's created in the world because of that sin, right? Like that's a sin, but it's a big, it's a high level sin because it throws off a whole thread. And then everybody downstream of that thread is like missing. Like they're, they're missing a whole ability to reference frame. But yeah, the first three commandments, I am the Lord, your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image. And that 
I mean, I think people don't realize the revolutionary nature of that commandment. And that commandment isn't merely the commandment to don't make a little statue. That's that's the specific manifestation of it. But even Protestants who are iconoclastic can violate that commandment in a sense by saying they capture God. No, and, and that's why you worship God. You don't capture God because you can't. And if there's anything that you should learn from from reading the Bible, in my opinion, is that you, the, you, the posture you have towards God has to be one of a servant, one of a receiver, one of a worshiper, not one of a master. When you and and we subtly slip into that role all the time, and it's so easy to do, right? It's so pernicious because and because it's always the third commandment of Jesus that at least for me right it's the third it's the temptation of virtue that gets you right it's the, it's that moment where i'm like i need to defend this virtue because this is threatening it and i'm going to use the bible to do it that's right and it's like now you just now you're in charge of making the thing happen and it's like now well you're not doing the thing anymore right right and you know the, the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and and that fear, I mean, sometimes it can be, af- you know, afraid. Sometimes it can be reverent awe. But it, you, fundamental in that is recognizing the asymmetry of the relationship from the beginning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And many, you know, many religious traditions get that, mm-hmm. but it is it is tremendously difficult to maintain it. You need a religious tradition because obviously you really can't live on nothingness. And and even once you say, well, I live on nothingness, well, there's your dogma. I mean, you, you need, you need yeah. something, but, and, and so it, it, you have to, you have to maintain a posture of obedience, submission, mm-hmm. reverence, worship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like you can scale that up, right? It can be scaled up in the in the way that you know we can abstract out these layers of the thing and put them into things like dogma, but they they're only used as dogma pointing upward, if that makes sense, right? right. Like as soon as they turn around and point downward, it becomes you know the the inverse of of Christ's you know, the first will be last and the last will be first, yeah. and he was greatest must be servant of all. It's like if as soon as you start enforcing this dogma top down instead of using it as like hey this is a way if you want to come up like those are different things they they are it, you know think about it think about it analogous to let's say are you married mm-hmm. okay a relationship do you have kids i have uh, a 10 week old oh well you're just getting started <laughs> yeah, um, yeah exactly i mean you you know a lot about your wife mm-hmm she's um and yet she's a mystery to you both of those things are true yeah 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 <laughs> and yeah. and so i've been married 35 years and i know you, you you might be able to make an argument that i know my wife better than you know yours just because we've been together longer but when even when you say it though you you begin to if you say it and you think about it you begin to realize how fraught even that statement is because I'm I'm continuing to change, she's continuing to change, but what what's amazing is that after 35 years, there's some things that 
you know, I can pretty, is she going to like this? Is she not going to like this? And then, so then now I've got five children. I've got five adult children. Let's say one of them comes to me and says, I'm thinking about doing this for mom. What do you think? So it runs both ways. There is dogma with respect to my wife. Sure. But, but even the dogma, I mean, you can't even contain my wife with the dogma, much less the creator God. So, oh, yeah. But yeah. there can be things to know, and there's there's information and knowledge that you can pass along. I mean, all those things are true. It's it's just we do have to continue to realize our limits. But even even so, let's say you do something and you your wife doesn't like it, and you thought she would, then it's like, well, didn't you know? And it's like. Did I know? Didn't I know? I mean, did I, did I really want to give this thing to you because I wanted to give it to you? Or was I thinking, you know, it's, and and we, that's right. (laughs) And we have this, we have this all the time, just with other people. And so psychologists will talk about projection and, you know, transference, counter transport. I mean, it's enormously complex, even just with other human beings. Yes, 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 yes. And, and even with even simpler creatures like dogs and cats, we certainly know our dogs and cats better than we know our spouses or our children or our coworkers. But yep. The, yep. The, the, the art of knowing is no simple thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, yes. That's, yes. So thank you. That's phenomenal. And so I want to take all of this that we've just built is like this is like this is fundamental to this thing that we mean of Christianity that we're trying to participate in right and i want to try to talk about that with people my difficulty is i often try to talk about that with people and what they see is literally the opposite of what we just talked about they see a repressive system that's engendered you know difficult things into the world and that's a particular like viewpoint of it through all these distortions and that's like that i don't i don't mean to say anything about what that is in terms of its content but i'm just like how do we talk about these in a way that we don't spend all the time just like trying to pull apart like you know i don't mean what you think of as christianity i'm trying to talk about something different does that make sense it makes perfect sense. And and part of the reason part of the reason on my in my channel, what I spend a lot of time doing with is just people's stories. Because mm. I mean, talk about what one of the things that I said this morning, I listened to um Rosario, Rosaria Butterfield talking to Beckett Cook. So you've got two individuals, both who had lived, um, you know, you know, very gay lifestyles, and both of whom had pretty dramatic transportation or transportation transformations. And, and it was Rosario Butterfield's; she, her story is pretty famous now. But you know, when you listen to her tell her story, it's just a story. Mm-hmm. And now she's got a whole bunch of other. I mean, she's been writing books. And she's got a whole bunch of other messages that she's sending out. She's got a particular, you can sort of place her in a particular bucket of Christians in terms of a whole bunch of things. Fair enough. But the story, there, there's a level, there's a level to reality that stories um capture. 
and and it's a very durable layer. It's not perfect, but it's a very durable layer. And and usually again, what we want to do is is give people deliverables where and and again, what is a what is a deliverable? It's usually procedural or it's propositional, it's an abstraction that you can just apply to your life. And and that's that's completely human. It's totally well and good. Um we should all make use of the deliverables around us. But if, if, and I wouldn't, I'd, I'd back off of Christianity and using that word, because once you use that word, people, it's, whoop, we're just right there with people and it's back off the word and tell the story. And, and again, even the, even the new Testament phrase, I mean, be ready to, to share with people the hope that is within you. That's a very story oriented and it's 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 automatically it's all four Ps right away. It's perspectival, it's procedural, um, it's participatory. What what hope do you have within you? Um, you know, it was interesting in her in her talk with Beckett. She was talking about the fact. So she was a, a university professor, I think, in University of Syracuse. She was a tenured professor in English literature and gender studies, and she was basically going to write a book about these horrible evangelical Christians, but she's a serious scholar and a researcher. So she decides to research and she got all kinds of letters from hate mail and love mail from people on different sides of the gender fight. And you know, she got one more particularly interesting letter from a pastor and, and she just began a relationship with him. And, you know, one of the things that she noted was that in her in sort of in her religious context, everything was political and it was all about politics and activism. And, you know, they were, they lived and died on that hill emotionally. And one of the things that really impressed her was that clearly these conservative reformed um, people that she was dealing with had strong views of all sorts of things, but, they didn't live and die in their politics or their activism or anything. They they were living and dying in Christ. And that meant a certain amount of, of freedom from the ups and downs of, and, and you can apply this to churches, the ups and downs of Sunday morning attendance, the ups and downs of the YouTube algorithm, the ups and downs of all of these things, because your life is hidden, um, your life is hidden in Christ. And you know that all these other things are going to happen. So you, what you can really share with people is you. <laughs> that's, that's the most real thing you have to share with them. And you're going to have ideas and abstractions. I also often note that, you know, obviously in Christian circles, let's say you look at the Apostle Paul. If the Apostle Paul was walking around today, what opinions would he have about all sorts of things? The truth is they'd be all over the map, and perhaps some of the people who uh, count themselves the greatest followers of, of the teachings and writings of the Apostle Paul, he might hate their guts. They're just living <laughs> in totally different realms because yes. we take these things, we have to abstract them, we have to build models, we have to build systems. None of that is bad or wrong or anything, but... Yeah. There's an unrealness about it that is, you are more real than that. And so what you should actually share is you to the best you can. It's remarkably difficult. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. even just look at Jesus. 
He spends yeah. three years. And one of the things, so when I was in college, you know, I grew up in a minister's home, went to college, went to a Christian college, but did think to myself, you know, I, I should just read this Bible and, you know, well, what do I think of this Bible? Hmm. And, you know, I had read stuff in the Bible before I'd been to church all my life, but I started reading it as a young college student thinking, this this book is strange. Mm-hmm. You'd think, given the Dutch Calvinist stuff that I'm looking at, that you, you'd think it would look more like a catechism mm-hmm. or it would look like a, a tome of, of systematic theology. And then you've got Jesus walking around and, you know, they're having fights about you know, healing on Sunday, and he has all these crazy sayings, and it's like, this is truly strange. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it's still, it's still, you know, changing people. Well, what's yeah. with that? It just goes from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess, like, this is kind of, I guess this is tying together a bunch of things for me with the way you said that, because it's been really important to me to learn about, um, some of the neoplatonic stuff and uh especially dc schindler's book plato's critique of impure reason and starting to get this sense of the ascent and return in the cave and the world of ideas and the world of appearances and all these kinds of things but it's like almost one of the things i'm seeing in what you're saying is that you have to like use the appropriate medium for the level you're dealing with and it's like narrative narrative is the appropriate medium for narrative trauma if we're going to be um if we're going to be participating with the world in such a way as to bring the gospel the good news of redemption into it which which means something very real and embodied if we're going to do that it we might like i needed to get clear about the ideas right i needed to go out of the cave so that the idea the thing in itself became clear to me and it became clear to me that it was not me and it was not in relation to me i was in relation to it and then in, if you're going to go back down and you're going to like say say participate the enactment of forgiveness like that is like what that means is agape that means agape on the level of the individual narrative where what what connects to people what connects us all to each other is the subversion in that happens when the narrative is engaged with agape because the narrative level only resolves with forgiveness through agape, something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, and and if you look at say something like forgiveness, let's say, oh, I'm going to learn about forgiveness. You can go go to Amazon and find the top books in because Amazon likes all these little micro rankings. You know, top book in forgiveness. Yeah. <laughs> you can get you can get you can and read that book categories in, right. Right. You can <laughs> read that. You can read that book and not learn anything like you would learn. If mm. let's say someone close to you betrayed you and what that would call you to, mm-hmm. and then what forgiveness looks like. And again, all of this language is an attempt to approximate it, but even just look at the language we would looks like looking is a very, you know, receptive enterprise. And, and that's, that's the, that's the Christian life. Yeah. That's that's what you do. It it's it's a and you know, this is one of the things I appreciate about you know what John is trying to do. He's he's at least recognized that, you know, I, I love what he said to Jonathan Peugeot about Plato. I mean, the way we taught Plato 
just stupid. And, and it's not that those dialogues are unimportant and they are important. They've shaped Western history. All that is great, but life is to be lived. And if anything is going to be of any use, then yeah, having <laughs> the, the painful, difficult thing of having to forgive someone if someone pays attention to it is far more instructive than the best book you can find on the Amazon list of forgiveness books. Yeah. 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 I really appreciate this conversation because this is actually kind of like I've, there's a real insight in this for me because I'm, I'm seeing this way in which like one of the things I've just been like kicking against is this feeling of exclusivity about Christianity. And that's been like, that's been like one of the thorn in my side that's driven me down this whole path. But once I, once I felt like I was able to make peace with the actual idea itself, then I'm trying to figure out how to communicate it or, or walk through it. And, and there's become, there's something of like this, you know, how John always says, um, put on my grave, neither um, utopia nor nostalgia. Yeah, yeah. And I found that to be so helpful as like an existential, yeah. I, like I, I use it almost like a Cohen because I see in myself in this way, there's like this utopic vision. Of yeah. Like, man, if we could get Christianity right, if you yeah. all just could understand it. But yeah. then so, what? So, then what? Tell me, exactly, tell me. <laughs> exactly. Then we would all just live, right? But like, just live now, which is always, which is always the teaching. Yeah. <laughs> If you could, and, that, and that's a that's a fun exercise to do when you when you watch someone being, you know, either dramatic either towards disaster or utopia. It's like, okay, what, what, what then? And it's, I mean, think about think about how to be a Christian towards your dog. Uh, you can talk, you can say anything you want to your dog, and they're only going to get thirty words. Okay, um, what is what is what is living the life of Christ towards your towards your pet? What does that look like? It is a it is a life that is lived. And again, we're we're not going to get away from having to talk about things, have abstractions, have models. We're not going to get away from any of that because that's a function of for a certain subset of us. I made a video a number a, a few months ago. You know, basically, I don't remember the title of it, um, to the effect of, you know, why, you know, why so often unsophisticated Christians are better Christians. It was something to that fact. If you if you look at my channel and you search, search sophisticated, you'd probably find it. Sure. But because I saw that where you got all these smart people who've read a lot of books. And again, I I. I love all this thinky talky stuff. I really do. I need it. I need it for me. I need it for my heart. It's just part of how I'm wired. But I so often see and live amongst Christians that way outperform me. And if you ask them a question about doctrine or dogma or, you know, anything that's anything that's supposedly really important right now in Christianity, whatever the the newest fads are all over the map and they're always fads. They can't tell you a darn thing about it, but you know how, you know what they know how to do. They know how to love other people. Well, and I will take that over a world of really brilliant people who are tremendously well-read because 
and and that that isn't to say that that lack of sophistication doesn't sometimes cause trouble because sometimes yeah. those unsophisticated Christians can get duped or blindsided or I mean none of us are are infallible but that and, it, and that just demonstrates the fact that life life life, life is to be lived that's and and there's there's so much in it that we can't control and and this is in a sense why you know and this this doesn't sound tremendously protestant a lot of these words sort of have dual dual tasks within models but why there are saints why there are exemplary christians among us and and part of the irony is that sometimes people are exemplary christians in one way but not another mm-hmm. and 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 we can't often tell where those boundaries are and so so we follow these saints and sometimes they got things right they got some things right and they got some things wrong and we're tended to dismiss them because they got a particular thing wrong that's just as much a function of our perception of them too and our value hierarchy so but yeah christianity is to be lived part of the difficulty especially on youtube is that we're looking at each other in this little thin screen in this little window what do you know about me what do i know about you it's tremendously unreal but yeah. it's better than nothing apparently because we're still <laughs> watching well it's interesting because like when it when you start off thinking about the ideas like for me it was so important to disentangle so many things that were manifesting in negative ways in my life like for me to become purified or sanctified or or whatever necessitated a path through this kind of call it intellectual world where i had to understand what was going on for me with martin luther and i had to understand what was going on for me with augustine and i had to understand what was going on for me with kant and descartes like if bef- once i understood those then i could start to see but that you know and and there's a way in which like there is good time to be spent in in pulling apart these knots because yep. if you're able to pull the, apart the knots in a way that people can hear you they can now be free of that knot yep. but like, you know, Jesus didn't write down his words, neither did Socrates and neither did Buddha. But they've had, the, you know, those are three of the most outsized effects on the world of all time, because what the, the, the being of truth that came through them generated such a field that downstream of it, we could, you know, we could climb into these worlds and build all these, you know, you can build Hegelian philosophy. Yep. But I mean, it just sits there, right? Yep. 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 <laughs> no, that's right. That's exactly right. It's a castle and, in the sky. Yep. And, you know, I'm I'm in the same boat. I wouldn't have, oh gosh, how many hours do I have on YouTube right now? I mean, <laughs> I, I do a ton of it. And and so much of my channel, you know, it's conversations or it's, it's me trying to untie knots. Totally. And... And I found for me, whether it's blogging, I did that earlier before I did this, or it's on YouTube, I find it helpful to, that's what you do too, as a community, you sit around in a circle, here you got a big knot, we're all going to work on it together. Yep. And YouTube is sort of a way that we do that. It's imperfect, yep. but it's, it's better than thinking alone. Yeah, yeah. And for me, my experience is like, 
I, I, I hope that the content that I put on YouTube is of service to people. Yeah. But I, that's actually not the primary reason I do it. The primary reason I do it is because it, it, it helps me just dis, get disentangled. Yep. Okay? Yep. Yep. Like, I wouldn't be talking to you if it wasn't for this. And this is, this conversation has led to an insight for me. So maybe in some way it's inherently selfish, but I hope it's selfish in the way that it makes me more like Christ and thus makes others like Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and so I think, yeah, like it's, it's, it's funny because it's that attitude. It's having that kind of attitude with all the different layers kind of simultaneously. Something like that. Yeah. 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 And, and we don't know. So we, <laughs> we untie, no, you're, you're exactly right. It's then my channel. I try to explain that to people sometimes because they'll watch my videos and I'll say, Gosh, he's rambling. The video's an hour and a half. We he didn't get to the point until the end. That's because I didn't know the point until the end. Yeah, and I, yeah, I yeah. you know, and, and sometimes I don't know the point until after the end. And I'm thinking about the video and thinking, like, gosh, I gotta put a title on this thing. What what really was I looking for? What insight did I grasp? And yeah. and then I, you know, then I just tell people, you know, I'm if if my video was helpful, you know, I'm glad I can share it with you. But if you say I can't sit through all that, I'd say I totally understand. I'm sure I probably couldn't either. So um, this is just <laughs> this is just my process. And as long as YouTube is going to give me free bandwidth, okay, I guess yeah. I'll keep doing it um, yeah. because I I have found it I have found it helpful for me. And and the reason that it's helpful is that it is facilitating community mm -hmm. because part of so. Again, I noticed I, I was sort of a little bit dismissive of abstraction or implementation or giving something, someone actionable, but we do need that. And part of part of why community works is that I can learn from you, you can learn from me, and others watching us will have other observations. And you know, it's in the it's in the book of Proverbs all over the place. I mean, be, you know, listen. Pay attention. Don't just listen to your friends. Listen to your critics. Um, even listen to your enemies. And if you're humble enough to learn from them, your enemies can bless you. And, you know, many wisdom traditions have noted this for a very long time. But doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, at least for me, it's always the return. It's often the return to the... the the space of abstraction now that allows me to come to come back to that and i think that's like well i don't think there's anything wrong with that i don't i don't want to need to go back there i want it to be i i want to be i want to live in such a way that i don't need to go anywhere else in order to be here right <laughs> and so now it is that way and so here i am but yeah. Well, I think there's, I don't think we should be too embarrassed by going there because when you think about what abstraction is, abstraction, I often will do, I did this for a while on my lot, a lot of my videos, you know, you've got lower and upper register. Upper register is sort of the, the world of the mind and the world of the mind is, is heaven-like in some ways. There isn't decay. Um, and so 
going there and visiting there is not a bad thing. It's that human beings are deeply connected between both. And and to actually attain it is is a good thing. It's just that this in this in this world, this up here is it's it's to serve the lower. <laughs> you know, it's very Peugeotian. The the upper is to serve the lower yeah. and the lower is to support the upper. And as long as that dynamic is functioning well, it's a it's a very blessed thing. Because yeah. we and that's 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 the reason you have the desire to to know the thing in and of itself. Yeah, because really, like like that's what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven, is to actually have both things coming together at the same time in real life as a real particular person. And that's right. you know what it means for the kingdom of heaven to come to earth. I think thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's right there in the Lord's prayer. Yeah. But it's not some kind of like future abstracted event, right? Like that's, I think one of the things where we get really tripped up is like, now whether it is in the grand narrative or not, I don't know, but like, at least from what it's trying to say to me, what that text I think is not suggesting to me is that somewhere in the future that that prayer is asking like Jesus to come back in the sky and judge everyone. That, but that prayer is actually asking that that is realized as a function of my life, not in a totalizing sense, but in the particular being of my life. Yeah. I don't know that those things are separable. Okay. Okay. How because, so? well, we, we so live, I was watching, so my wife and I are going through this, um, this, this very interesting series on Hulu um guy's name Ramy R A M Y it's about a it's about a an is a, a kid who's grown up in North Jersey and um his parents were muslim immigrants from Egypt and he's he's just trying to figure out if he wants to be muslim or not and trying to figure out his life and there's one episode where they really it's quite a remarkable series different episodes often focus on different family members and the one episode on his father um, his father had lost his job, didn't want to tell his wife, didn't want to tell his family, was getting tremendously stressed out because bills weren't getting paid and all of this stuff. And finally, his son, he blows up at an important family meeting and his son goes out to him and his father says to him, you know, I I live in the future so that you can live in the present. And I want you and your mom and your sister to all live in the present. I'm going to live in the future. I mean, I'm going to think about the bills. I'm going to think about, and and as human beings, as we live in history, we're almost always forward-looking and forward-leaning. And, and I often, you know, it's so funny because it becomes a cliche in our culture. We'll live in the moment. And I think, well, like my dog, uh, like the apes in Africa. Um, no, we we don't we don't get to do that. We do have to we do have to navigate that so that we're not simply living in the future, but the future does orient us. And you know, I the I mean, John was talking about this. Um, it the double the sacred double is different from what I talk about the secret sacred self because the secret sacred self is a much more gnostic. Um, that's it's a sort of gnosticism that's in our culture but the divine double that's what john calls it um you know where we are there's a future there's a future you mm-hmm. that you want to become mm-hmm. and there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with that 
And, and in many ways that has to line up, that has to go all the way to the top. And that's what we do with, you know, when we talk about the second coming of the Lord, um, thy, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All of that just lines us to the future because we are creatures in time. And I think, especially for us, if, if we sort of take the skeptical route of saying, oh, I don't know about the second coming of Christ, or I don't know about my participation in the afterlife. I, I think that sort of cuts us off at our knees and it doesn't help us sort of orient ourselves properly. I hmm. think, I don't, I don't think we can actually function without mentally projecting ourselves into this future. I, I think that's just part and parcel of how we live. And, you know, I know John and Jonathan have gone back and forth on that. And I think they've sort of arrived at a certain, at a certain detente with that. But I remember Peugeot saying in one of the early conversations, I mean, I think it's fair to say that existence isn't itself narrative. And the last conversation that John and Jonathan right. had, I thought was really good on that. Yeah, yeah Existence yeah. isn't itself narrative, but I don't know that we as human beings can seriously operate without it. And, and you get that by reading in scripture. I mean, just look at, go through your Bible and try to find all the places that it talks about the life of the age to come. I'm going to use that language because I think it's a little bit sure. sharper than some of the other terms. We have no idea. Yeah, Are yeah. streets really going to be paved in gold? I mean, right. uh, we we don't we don't have any idea. And and all of the, you know, the Apostle Paul basically probably talking about himself. You know, caught up into the third heaven. You know, can't articulate it. Mm -hmm. That that actually sounds very reasonable. But I I think we have to still use our narrative future leaning orientation to actually achieve the transformations that we're looking for. And, and part of the reason I believe that is because in watching, let's say, the modernist fundamentalist fight in America, I don't want to discount the modernists, but I think the path of fundamentalism for all of the pitfalls and things it fell into actually in many ways was more reliable because they didn't naively jettison the symbolic narrative language mm. and i think more modernists got lost because they didn't appreciate you know it, it'd be like if you're trying to make your way through the wilderness say i don't need that map that that yeah. map is not the wilderness no it isn't <laughs> but it's gonna be really helpful for orienting you to get through an actual wilderness mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah Thank you for that. That's, you know, this is interesting because this is like, this has been one of the things that I've been working with for a while is, you know, I, you know, it first showed up in that dialectic with, with Jordan and Jonathan and, and, and John, um, at least that was the first I heard of it where, you know, John is making it, is insisting that narrative is not the fundamental um, <clears throat> ontology. And, and so like at first it just kind of bothered me and then slowly I started to work with it. And as I've worked with it more and more, I, um, I don't know, like, I think all this 
territory gets very tricky because it depends on which side you're speaking uh, from, right? If I'm speaking from the side of like me in my particular mind making sense of the world, that's one side. And then there's the other side, which is kind of the transcendent reality that we're pointing to. But we're talking about how to orient them or orient our relationship to them. So there's a weird paradox happening where it's like, okay, narrative is fundamental in this thing right like if i don't have narrative when i'm when i'm uh, working through my life it's it's fundamental there and in that way well no i'll i'll come to that argument later because this is an argument i want to wait make at the end of this but then on the other side there is some kind of transcendent thing that is real and i know that at the end of the day it's all okay because it has to be and so you need a narrative that gives you that while you're still in the narrative. But when you're in the narrative, there's, and, and you perceive that as being fundamental, you almost are forced into some utopic or you're, you're almost forced into some utopic slip. There's a little slip there where it's like, as soon as Jesus is actually coming back, when things get really bad, like there's a, there's a slippery slope. So it has to be like, I, th I think th I think John's point in this last conversation with with Jonathan was really important to say that I don't think that well, I'm not trying to do away with narrative at, by any means. I'm just trying to say that. And I think really the argument he's making here is like, you're not the center of the universe in your egocentric state. Really, when you make this shift in your head, you notice how your life is being lived and it's constrained to a certain space and you're constrained by forces you can't understand. You do have agency in it. You, you are a real agent, but it's all more complicated than you can know. So just do your best and be in it. And so I think, I think that is where I've gone with that problem. And it's led me to this point where I think, like, I want to make the argument that Christianity as, as, as the story of Christ and this whole thing is like the, like the completion of the narrative such that you can drop out of the narrative, but you don't have problems with it, right? Because there's all kinds of other traditions that drop you out of the narrative, right? Like yeah. Buddhism, you drop out of the narrative. Yeah. All these, there's all kinds yeah. of ways to drop out of the narrative, yeah. but they none of them like bottom out the narrative in itself, right? Like yeah. the claim that Jesus becomes becomes incarnated and actually dies and actually rises again. It's like, yeah, yeah. it bottoms the whole thing. So for me, I guess, Christianity has become a non-narrative narrative. It's a narrative that finishes the narrative and allows me to engage with reality in a non-narrative way. Think about, so you're 10-month-old boy or girl? Girl. Girl, okay. I bet you cannot look at your daughter and not construct a narrative. Now, that narrative isn't terribly present to you. But if I were to ask you, what's your daughter going to be like at three? What's she going to be like at five? What's she going to be doing when she's seven? I mean, you're just going to, there's a narrative back there. It's pretty fuzzy. It's pretty implicit, but it's all in there. Absolutely. That narrative will not happen as you think it will. I can, yeah. I've got five kids. They're all in their One's in their, one's in his thirties. All the rest are in their twenties. I yeah. can promise you <laughs> that. But you can't help but have that narrative. Yes. And yes. that narrative is 
very useful for you, but it's it's much more like a big sheet of a big map that you're always editing. And there'll be points when something happens and that narrative gets violated and you will mourn or lament. And sometimes that narrative gets violated and you'll celebrate. And, you know, and, you know, your wife is in there too, and the kid and parents and friends. I mean, there's a whole world around it. And, and I think it's helpful to think in those terms that the narrative is inescapable. You, it's just simply too deep in you. This is, this is a, this is an operating system that you are using and it's, but it's going to be flexible. And, and, and I think if we think in those terms, the, when we think about Christian eschatology, that's super helpful because of course there are, I mean, Christian eschatology is one of these areas that there is by no means agreement on in the church. You know, there's, you know, there's the dispensationalism, there's the, you know, pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill. I mean, there's all these different schemas. And if you, so, well, there's no agreement in the church on this, but narrative itself, I think it's, I think it's inescapable. Now, how you handle that narrative with respect to your relationship with your daughter, it's pretty darn important because what there's going to be some opponent processing in your relationship with that narrative. There's going to be times as a father that you insist on this narrative with your daughter and there's going to be discipline. There's going to be tears. Um, I mean, there's going to be all kinds of drama in play because you're going to be like, these are things you do and these are things you don't do. There's going to be other times when you're going to have to give way. Your narrative's going to have to yield to all sorts of other things. And you're going to be right there in the middle adjusting the whole time. And I don't know that that is tremendously different from our relationship with narrative with our lives moving forward in Christ. Because again, back to where we started, thinking about our relationship with Christ in relational terms more necessarily than in 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 theoretical terms helps and, and that's when you begin to realize the dynamic nature of the mapping and unmapping yeah i i think i agree with you for for everything on this side for for me that um there's i, I don't know how to how to say exactly how there's something else for me too there's something else for me because there's there's a, there's a level of my experience at which i mean it, it's the kind of level that i've only touched through meditation and kind of like mystical kind of experiences but and and but i But you have know. that with your daughter too right you come into you come into her room. She's 10 months old now. So she's probably starting to stand up in the crib, right? 10, ten weeks. 10 weeks. Oh, 10 weeks. Yeah. yeah oh, sorry. You're just getting started earlier. in the mystical yeah, yeah, yeah. relationship between, especially the mother's already, the mother's ahead of you because she, yeah. I mean, you might've felt a little rubbing on the belly, but she's way sure. ahead of you in this, but yeah. you are going to also have non-narrative mystical experiences as a father. Mm-hmm. There are going to be moments of transcendence. I've had a couple already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just and like there was, there was a moment like 
there was this moment where I was actually kind of out of my own way. And I was like, I had her there and she was just staring into my eyes and like, yep. Yep. And I was, I was, you know, I have all this stuff about agape and all this stuff that I'm trying to like embody and participate in that moment. And it was a, like, it was a, a very, very profound experience, but yeah. it, it was, and it's not narrative. Of... No, I get your point. Yeah. 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 It, and now, but then you're going to have, <laughs> then your narrative and your non-narrative are going to be in conversation with each other because yeah. you're going to, you're going to desire more of those non-narrative moments. A birthday party is in a sense, the interchange between the narrative and the non-narrative. Sure. You're using the narrative to set up a non-narrative, which is, you know, the celebration of her, you know, giving her that, you know, and Americans often do giving her a big piece of cake or something on her first birthday and, you know, gets it all over. <laughs> yep. 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 Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I, I think I'm, uh, I've, I've enjoyed this a lot and I'm not sure if uh, now feels like an appropriate time to, to end it for you. I'm kind of feeling satisfied. Oh, that's, that's okay by me. That's okay by me. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming. Any final um, things you want to say or. No, it's a, it's a delight. I love doing this. And, um and I, I haven't watched too many of your videos, but you know how YouTube is, you start watching a few and they keep serving up more. And um so I've, I've caught some of it and I just want to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing and keep climbing that mountain and um, keep thinking and sharing and thinking in public and thinking with others and um, and yeah continue to enjoy continue to enjoy your marriage and your child I mean I I am I am dumbfounded by our culture where people so quickly are dismissive of one of the most challenging and potentially joyful um, things that, I mean, people want to travel and go visit other countries. And it's like, if you have a child, it's, it's an adventure like you can't imagine. And it's a lifelong adventure. So, but I was, you know, when I was young, I was too dumb to know that I didn't know. And now that, you know, and now my kids are young adults and, you know, we just had the holidays and boy, you know, there's there now there's nothing like having the kids home for the holidays and, you know, hoping that soon there'll be some weddings. And then <laughs> at some point, grand, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the great, it's one of the great gifts of, of human life. It's one of the most challenging, but um, so congratulations and, uh, and yeah, pursue it. That's a, that's a whole nother mountain in and of itself. Indeed. I, yeah. I, well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you, first of all, and I uh, appreciate the encouragement and yeah, it's um, I, I'm, I've, I'm so far, I've been attempting to take the role of fatherhood as seriously as I can from the perspective of trying to understand just what's going on. And it's been quite a roller coaster. So yeah. Yeah. Thank you for the encouragement. Uh, I appreciate it. Wonderful. You. All right. All the best. All right.